0: Adam Becker, very welcome to the Fri podcast podcast. Uh, thank you, Jan. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We've just published in Sweden your book, What is Real? Uh, the name in Swedish is Vad är verkligt, which is exactly the same meaning. Um, um, about uh, quantum physics and the history of interpretation, so to speak. F- first, tell me, what made you decide to write a book about a topic that is quite difficult for most people to understand. How did it, how <laughs> did it come about? Uh, that's a good question. Um,
1: mostly uh, it happened because I was bothered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was not happy with the usual ways that people talk about quantum physics in mm-hmm. the classroom and in books on the subject. Um, I uh, was studying physics mm. in university and had questions <laughs> about, mm. uh, about how quantum physics worked. Mm. And I was finding that the answers I got to those questions were not terribly satisfying to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had thought, you know, I read, I read a lot of pop physics books um, mm. as, uh, as a teenager. The I Tower thought, okay, of Physics, you know, for example. Uh, I didn't read that one but I read other books like uh oh I don't know uh Black Holes and Time Warps by yeah. uh by Kip Thorne. Uh yeah, 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 which yeah, is a great yeah. one. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah and uh what the the Elegant Universe by Brian Greene and mm. uh, and books like that. And uh and, and you know many of these books talk about quantum physics uh and uh and they also talk about relativity and I thought uh okay you know um well Special relativity didn't make a lot of sense to me in those books. And then I learned it in the classroom and it made a lot of sense. And I thought, okay, quantum physics will be like that. Hmm. And then when I learned quantum physics in the classroom, it uh, I didn't get good answers to the questions I had. Like, you know, well, what, why can't we talk about what's going on when we're not looking yeah. uh, at, uh, at, you know, a quantum system? Uh, and so I started you know, uh, doing some reading and doing some research and talking with people in both physics departments and philosophy departments and eventually realized, okay, there is, um, a disconnect here. Uh, there's, there's something funny going on. Uh, and so I went looking for a book about how it happened that, um, that physics sort of had this question at the heart of, uh, at the heart of the subject, at the heart of quantum physics. And that, you know, that there was not resolution on it and that many physicists uh, just didn't know about this debate or didn't know much about it, mm. uh, which seemed like a strange historical story to me. And I thought, okay, well, someone's probably written a book about that. And then they, I discovered that there wasn't such a book uh, or at least not one that covered it in the way that I wanted it to be covered.
0: Mm. And so then I thought, well, I want to write it. <laughs> So I did, so you did, <laughs> certainly, you did, yeah well, I mean, how much had you written before that uh tell me, I mean your writing background um well uh i i mean i I
1: sort of just gave you the very quick version of that story, but uh when mm-hmm. when I decided you know oh, i thought I'd, I'd like to write a book about that, uh I had not written very much, uh, mm-hmm. and so I didn't think it was something I would actually get to do um but um by the time i actually wrote the book which was you know years later um i had worked as a um as a journalist a science journalist for i guess oh a couple of years um before i got the book deal uh so i'd written for new scientist magazine i'd written for the bbc um I'd never written a book before. Mm, uh, no. But I,
0: yeah. But I knew other people who had written books. And, yeah. Um, and you had published articles. So you were, in that sense, familiar with writing about science, obviously. Yes. Yes. But were you, before we talk about the actual subject, were you personally, was your plan before that to become a, a physicist, I mean, a scientist, or did you want to write all the time about science?
1: Yeah, uh it's a good question. Um right. I mean I did I did go and get um my PhD in physics. Mm. Uh and when I started that program, I thought, uh, oh, maybe I want to be a physicist, maybe I don't. I'm not sure, but I want to learn more physics and getting a PhD is a good way of doing that. Um so I I you know that was it was many years ago when I started that program. I don't remember exactly what no. my thoughts were, but I, I know that you know, I always liked writing about science and talking about science. And I always thought, OK, you know, a job as a science communicator might be where I end up going. Mm. Um, and by the time I finished my Ph.D., I had a pretty good idea that that's what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, so, you know, because I, I was a, a reasonably good physicist, uh, but I, I had always been interested in writing and public speaking. And mm. I knew that uh, doing something at the intersection of those interests was probably a better move for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah. I mean, at least for my in my own case, I also read books about quantum physics when I was like a teenager. And I soon realized that there were so many, what I would call new age interpretations of quantum <laughs> physics that annoyed <laughs> me a lot. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 it seemed to me that I mean they reasoned something like this: new age is very mysterious, and quantum physics is very mysterious. Therefore, they must be connected, <laughs> which yeah. is not a very good argument.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, we don't understand this, and we don't understand this, <laughs> exactly. and so they must be connected.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I remember a book. I remember a book called "The Dancing Wu Li Masters." Do you, Do you know which yeah. one? Yeah.
1: I refer to I'm it. familiar with the book. Yeah. I haven't yeah. read it, but I'm familiar okay. with it for sure.
0: So, yeah. so anyway, so in, in your, in your work with this book, have you sort of encountered that kind of attitudes uh, when you talk to people and interview people, this new age attitudes still? Interesting. Um, there are definitely people who have that attitude,
1: but most mm. of them are not people who work professionally in no. the foundations of quantum physics. Mm. Um, You know, uh, they're they're mostly people who send me emails about my book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Um, You get a lot of Uh, that?
1: A lot of emails? Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it is what it is. It is what it is. But (laughs) still, you know, I think it's interesting, like Bohm, for example, he had these conversations with Krishnamurti, for example. Yes. So yes. he was obviously having some kind of, you know, thoughts in this direction at least.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um but you know his I I, you know, obviously I never met David Bohm. He mm. um he died decades ago. Um mm. but I think that he yes, he had he had interests in mm. um new agey spiritual Stuff. Mm. Um, I think that he would have been the first to say, though, that while those interests, you know, may have informed his work on quantum physics, that the actual theory, the interpretation Mm. that he published in the early 1950s stood on its own. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was, was, yeah. Um, And certainly, you know, the people working on it today... Um. Don't necessarily share his his views on um, new age and spiritual stuff, uh, mm. or you know, um, you know the 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 conversations you have with Krishnamurti are um, of historical interest, um, but uh, are not considered you know essential for understanding Bohm's no. scientific work.
0: Yeah. Okay, let, let let's go back in time a bit for those who haven't read your yeah. book yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean. Where did it all start? When when did these sort of um, interpretation conflicts, or at least um, diversity, wh- wh- how did that start? I mean, it started at the very beginning. There's never been consensus
1: mm-hmm. on um, on the interpretation of quantum physics, so it's it started from the very earliest days of quantum physics. Um, you know, uh, some of these some of these questions about how quantum physics was to be understood predate the first full-fledged theories of quantum physics, which arrived in 1925 and 1926. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly with the arrival of Heisenberg's matrix mechanics, which is the first full-fledged theory of quantum physics uh, in 1925, and then Schrodinger's wave mechanics uh, Mm. in uh, early 1926, um, that's really when the debate started, um, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, there had been for a quarter century at that point, there had been this set of experimental results, uh, and theoretical confusion about those results that had been going on, um, for years, uh, with no single unified theory to explain it all, uh, a set of models, Uh, most famously the Bohr model of the atom, which uh, certainly uh, was a huge advance. Mm. um, But there was no unified, cohesive theory of the quantum world until Heisenberg and Schrodinger came along. Mm. Um, uh, And when that happened, uh, the debate began because Heisenberg who uh, you know came up with the central idea of his matrix mechanics, and then um, and then worked it out in its fullness with um, Max Born and Pasquale Jordan. Um, Heisenberg and company were convinced that you know the there was no physical picture that could go with such abstruse mathematics uh, because at the time matrices were not well known among physicists. Mm. Uh, Heisenberg himself had to sort of independently reinvent a good chunk of matrix mathematics, and it was Born who pointed out, oh no, these are matrices. Um, Mm. Schrodinger uh, used a wave equation, Mm. uh, and it was much more familiar math with a much more straightforward physical picture, and so he thought, okay, you know, there are waves, and the quantum world is all about waves. And uh, so the debate began there. Uh, and then it became clear that the two theories were actually two different ways of expressing the same underlying theory. Um, but the debate went on. Um, and and most famously at, at the these early days came to a head uh, in a debate between uh, an ongoing series of debates between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Bohr took up the position uh, that is now known as the Copenhagen interpretation or or a position that's consistent with what's now known as the Copenhagen interpretation. As I mm. talk about it in the book, that interpretation is a, itself a historical invention to sort of paper over a lot of uh, disagreements uh, between related positions that uh, Heisenberg and Bohr and Pauli and others all had. But... um. um But the debate began in earnest, I think, between Bohr and Einstein. Yeah. Uh, Bohr Bohr said, you know, there's no trouble here. The theory only talks about experimental results and uh, results of observations. And that's all we needed to talk about. We can't talk about what's happening when we're not looking. And Einstein came up with a series of objections to that position saying, look, this theory works, but it's not complete. Mm. Um, And uh, it went back and forth. And Bohr was widely seen as having gotten the better of Einstein. Uh, But if you actually look at what they said, it seems pretty clear that Einstein was just understanding the issues in a deeper way than Bohr and mm-hmm. um, and raising real questions that needed to be answered that Bohr was not giving good answers to. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then this came to um, its sort of climax with a paper called the EPR paper, uh, the yeah. Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paper, um, which uh, – ultimately led
0: to this year's Nobel Prizes in physics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It sure did. But if we stay with Bohr for a moment, I mean, have yeah. you, I mean, this is speculative, of course, I realize that, but have you, have you tried to understand on a psychological level why Bohr didn't want to understand what is represented? I mean, to me, that seems such a weird thing to do for a scientist. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is quite strange. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree. Yeah. Um, It's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess the short answer is it's very hard to know the answer to that because Bohr was a famously difficult writer. Uh, He he Mm. found writing, the process of writing difficult uh And his writing is is not particularly clear um mm. there's um there are stories uh some of which I recount in the book about um how unclear he was as a writer and as a public speaker um which you know that's that 's fine um He was a great physicist uh but he he had a set of philosophical motivations and People have tried to divine exactly what those were, mm. and due to the convoluted nature of the writing that Boer left behind, uh, and the the wildly varied interpretations of his positions by you know taken by the people who knew him well. Uh, there, There isn't really a consensus on exactly what Bohr was saying. I mean, there's definitely a few things that seem likely he, um, he was heavily influenced by certain kinds of philosophy. Uh, in particular, he spent a lot of time talking with uh, the logical positivists, though he himself claimed that he was not a positivist, but then at other times... He said that he was, or mm-hmm. that he was close to one. Uh, he certainly spent a lot of time hanging out with them, yeah. um, uh, and uh, and certainly his position is consistent with uh, a sort of cartoon idea of what you know logical positivism is. Um, uh, he also clearly read a lot of Kant, and there's mm. there's sort of echoes of that in his writing. Kant was also a famously obscure writer. Yeah. Um who uh whose whose writing um you know uh has been interpreted and reinterpreted in lots of different ways by his successors. Yeah. Um I mean the the one of the stories that I've heard about Kant is that uh sometimes People will read Kant in English translation, even if they know German because it can be easier to understand the translation <laughs> okay. than the original um, yeah. um I, I speaking about bohr's writing here's a story that's not in the book because it's about me um, The very first time I read a paper written by Bohr, which was his response to the e p r paper um i I went to uh, the professor that I was you know working with in, in that, uh, it, you know, that, that I was reading that paper for, uh, and I said to him, um, you know, when I was like, how old was I? I was like 21. It was in university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I said to this professor, Hey, uh, is there a better translation of this available? Uh, because this is, this is, you know, this is clearly not translated very well. And he said, no, 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 Adam, that was written in English <laughs> and Bort. And Bohr was fluent in English. He was a very good English speaker. Yeah. It's not like it was a problem with it not being his first language. though mm. it was not. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it was just. <laughs> That's so funny.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's there's a lot of other stories like that. Um, mm. in, but when um, when you connect when yeah. you when you refer to the logical positivists like the Vienna yeah. Circle, yes, uh, uh, I guess you're thinking of the fact that they sort of said that all metaphysics is meaningless and we we shouldn't deal with that. That's what you mean, right?
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so Bohr Bohr clearly had a set of prior philosophical commitments that Mm. he wanted quantum physics to conform to, Mm. Um, which, you know, I I mean, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Uh, That's part of how science works. We all come to the table with ideas about how the world is or how it has to be and Mm. then... You know, uh, see see how well the theories that that explain the data um, conform to those ideas. Uh, right. I mean, that's that's part of how science works. Uh, I, I would just say that Bohr was unwilling to consider alternatives to his position, uh, even when they were well argued for, mm. um, and that is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. And, and it's quite fascinating because you're you're used to hear that from you know people with strong religious commitments, uh, but, yeah. but here it's here it's you know it's the other way around more or less. I'm thinking of yeah. Fred Hoyle for example, who never accepted the big bang theory because he thought it was a crypto religious idea because he was a strong <laughs> atheist. <laughs> right. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean and 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 you know um Historically the first person to um develop the big bang thesis was a priest. Yeah. Uh yeah. Lemaître, um, exactly. Le yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So uh, and a scientist, I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. Not, yeah, but um but yeah, I mean, uh uh I I think that's right. Um, you know, and and here here in the US we have lots of people who are unwilling to accept uh say uh Evolution, yeah. because it conflicts with their religious views, yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and um, but you know, I think, um, I think that Hoyle is actually a good example, uh, in that, uh, in, in that, you know, we we associate it with people who have religious views, but Hoyle, I mean, <laughs> you could say that Hoyle had a lack of religious views, yeah, but exactly. he was very adamant about it, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I think and, that's fascinating
0: uh, because my, I myself yeah. is not religious at all, but I like to take that yeah. as an example, that it's not only the religious people who sort of reject science. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I think I think that being reluctant or just completely unwilling to accept things that don't conform with the way that you think the world works, mm. that's just a human quality. Yeah, Religion okay. is just one of the ways it's manifested. And mm, Bohr... You know i mean I, bohr was very uh convinced that he had the inside track on how the quantum how quantum physics had to be thought about mm. and uh and that there was no possible alternative um and
0: yeah um but but how do you yeah. uh <laughs> how do you perceive his reply to the EPR paradox uh, from Einstein then? Even if it was obscurely yeah. written, how do you what do you think he meant? Yeah maybe I, you should explain the EPR paradox yeah, first. Yeah, I was gonna
1: say I'm gonna explain EPR good, first. Good, yeah, good, so, good. Um so EPR. Um the the idea there uh was and, and this was not – the idea that Einstein had hoped to get across, which was not really pressed in the EPR paper itself the way that he wanted it to be. But the way that Einstein thought about it, and he made that clear in his later writing, um, was that EPR um, – well, there's a thought experiment at the heart of it. Let me, mm. let me start with that. Yeah. Um, uh the the idea is you can take two particles say electrons and entangle some property of them you can you can get them to interact in a way such that you can only describe uh their behavior with a single um quantum statement uh uh, what's called a wave function in quantum physics the sort of central mathematical object of um quantum mechanics uh you need a single wave function to describe their behavior even if you get them very very far apart from each other so you can take two electrons and electrons have this property called spin and you can entangle their spins um This is not exactly the thought experiment that was used in the original EPR paper, but this is an easier way of talking about Mm. it that was developed later, uh, actually, by David Bohm. Um, So you can take two electrons, entangle their spins, and then send them far apart from each other without breaking that entanglement. Mm. And you can get them entangled in such a way that uh, if one of them... If you measure one of them to have spin up, you know immediately that the other one has spin down. Mm. Um uh, And basically the EPR argument was that this is going to be true no matter what direction you measure that spin along. Mm. And so... If you measure uh, if you measure the spin of the one electron uh, up and down, uh, then the other electron, if it were measured up and down, would have to come out with an opposite measurement. So if you got spin up, you'd know the other one was spin down. But if you measured it left and right, instead you got spin left, the other one would have to be spin right or mm. something like that. Mm. And uh and this would be true even if the electrons were phenomenally far apart, you know, kilometers or even a light year or something like that. Mm. Um uh and you would know this instantaneously. And so the thought in the EPR experiment, uh in the in the paper, they said, Look, you know, basically this is this force is a choice, either there is some sort of instantaneous connection mm. between these two particles where... Faster uh, than the light. Yeah, faster than the speed of light, um, which, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of good reasons from relativity to think that that can't be true. Mm. Um, or there's just something missing because quantum physics doesn't tell you what the outcomes of these experiments will be. It just tells you that they'll be opposite. And... That's fine, and that's correct, but it's, you know, the PR paper was making the case that clearly that can't be the whole story because otherwise there would have to be something faster than the speed of light connecting mm. these particles. And, um, and so it forces a choice, basically, between either quantum physics being incomplete, not inaccurate, but incomplete, and... Something going faster than the speed of light what uh, what physicists call non locality mm. um and bohr both in his reply to e p r and his reply to einstein's restatement of e p r in his later writings um Bohr did not give a particularly clear answer um he he talked about uh He talked about an influence between the measuring device and what is being measured, which, uh, is, is certainly, you know, uh, that's, that's a thing that's real. That's, uh, that is not something that you can get around in quantum physics. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not clear that his response to EPR really addressed the core of the issue. Um, Mm. And
0: um, he seems to have missed the point. Um, But some people probably could argue that, and I know that that's not the case, but just for the argument's sake, that uh, these oppositions in spin was set beforehand, so to speak. Right, yes. Because they are connected mm, before they are separated.
1: Yes, and I think that that's what what Einstein wanted to um, imply. Einstein was basically saying, you know, oh, you know, this is, um, this, they must have had set spins before they left their central point where they, where they departed from. Um, Because in order to entangle two particles, you need to have them in the same spot uh, or generally need to have them interact in close proximity at some point. They can then just go flying off and remain entangled as long as you maintain their isolation from most mm. of the rest of the world until you measure them but mm. um yeah um Bohr was not having that Bohr Bohr said you know um well it's it, it's not even that Bohr was responding to that because Einstein did not explicitly say oh, you know, they must have had these spins before they were measured. He just sort of implied that there has to be something there that that quantum physics is missing. Yeah. And then Bohr said, uh, no, you know, they. I mean, basically he, he said, I mean, he said there's no question that everything has to be slower than the speed of light. Yeah. He said, you know, there's nothing faster than the speed of light here. That's not happening. Um... But there's also, you know, there's nothing missing from the description, mm. um, and so basically he he took this argument and responded to it, not by saying, um, "Well, let me let me back up." The EPR argument just takes a few premises and uses them logically to come to a conclusion, and there's nothing wrong with the argument itself. Mm. Um, there's there's a, a premise. In there that is sort of famously attacked uh, and, and you know, claimed to be incorrect. Uh, but this turns out to not be that important. And Einstein talked about that in his later writing and Bohr knew about that writing and responded mm. to that. So it's, it's, the point is there's a set of premises which are all very reasonable and then a con- Conclusion that either there's something going faster than the speed of light or quantum physics is incomplete. And in Bohr's reply, he doesn't really attack the premises mm-hmm. and he doesn't really go after the frame. You know, the the argument from the premises to the conclusions. He just says, "Oh, you know, both of those options are incorrect," mm-hmm. without really giving a good explanation of why. Mm. Um, or at least that's my read of it. Yeah, must be very frustrating yeah. for Einstein to not get yes. a proper reply. <laughs> Yeah, no, Einstein uh, and Schrodinger, who was very much sympathetic to Einstein, they wrote letters back and forth, you know, talking, uh, Schrodinger congratulated Einstein on this great explanation of what was wrong. And Einstein said, you know, that he was getting replies, but that the reply, explaining what he was wrong about, but that all of the replies disagreed with each other. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it was quite frustrating, uh, but... Yeah, the but, fact but, that Bohr
0: replied just seemed like enough for everyone mm. else. Mm-hmm. Why was Bohr so influential in the physics community at this time? Yeah, yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, no, I mean, again, I talk
1: about that in the book, uh, yeah. as you know. But uh, but yeah, uh, Bohr... I mean, Bohr had a really magnetic personality. He was yeah. very... Um, he he had a very magnetic personality. He was very compelling. Uh, he was very kind. Mm. I mean, most of these people were fairly kind uh, to their <laughs> their colleagues. I suppose Wolfgang Pauli would probably be the big exception. But um, <laughs> okay. but yeah, uh, but Bohr, Bohr was very collaborative and was very interested in fostering the careers of young scientists. Mm. Um, and and he you know ran a research institution and was by all accounts pretty good at running it um uh and so he had a great deal of political power uh as a result and a large number of allies uh you know there were people who a lot of a lot of great physicists who rightly saw Bohr as a mentor who had been there for them you know early in their careers and had pointed them toward interesting research questions and so on and so forth um uh, and so Bohr had a large community of physicists around him. Einstein was seen as a genius and and mm. a brilliant physicist, um, but where Bohr constantly needed to work with people, and this was sort of related to the fact that Bohr was, you know, had difficulty writing and, and, uh, and so he, co- you know, frequently wrote with people um, and, and had, you know, a series of assistants. Uh, Einstein... Einstein had close friendships with other physicists and would sometimes work with other physicists but was not collaborative, you know, or at least not nearly to the extent that Bohr was. I mean, Einstein uh, was certainly influenced by other physicists and the idea of him as a lone genius who did everything by himself in isolation, that's wrong. But Einstein did not really work very much with others. He did not run a research institution. He was not very politically savvy, Um, um, he—and I don't mean, like, you know, with geopolitics. I mean, like, you know, sort of academic politics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Einstein famously um, alienated the director of the Institute for Advanced Study, which is where he spent the last 20 years of his career, or the funder of the institute, I believe— and uh, and this led to him, you know, having very little pull there, even mm-hmm. though he was, you know, their star recruit. Um, he, yeah, he didn't have this massive network of people he'd mentored. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where Bohr was very influential, Einstein was seen as, as, you know, this person who had done great work, but was getting out of touch with the times, mm-hmm. um, uh, which... I think is just incorrect.
0: Interesting, but uh, okay. But then, then Bohm, David Bohm, uh, came yeah. along, and mm-hmm. could you could you say something about how he contributed to this interpretation discussion? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, David Bohm,
1: uh, he, so his, he he came up with. A genuine alternative to um, the the sort of standard line about quantum physics that Bohr had been pushing along with his allies uh, the the idea that you know these these deeper questions about what's happening in quantum physics just mm. don't really have answers. Bohm found a different way of looking at it, uh, which uh, ended up actually being very similar to a solution that, uh, Louis De Broglie had discovered, uh, about 25 years earlier in the, in the mid 1920s. Um, but De Broglie had abandoned it after, you know, not finding a way to work through particular paradoxes that came up. Bohm developed it independently in the very early 1950s, uh, after conversations with Einstein that, that convinced him that something was wrong. Um, and so Bohm, and Bohm found a way through the paradoxes that had, uh, uh, or the, the troubles, there weren't really paradoxes, the problems that, uh, that had led to to abandon it. Um, so Bohm, what Bohm developed was a, something that was mathematically identical to standard quantum mechanics. Uh, gave all of the same results, uh, but had a completely different interpretation, had a real physical picture that went along with it of particles guided by uh, what came to be known as pilot waves mm. um, and uh, and its solution to the choice presented by the EPR paradox um, was very straightforward. It's in in Bohm's way of thinking about quantum mechanics. There are faster than light influences um, mm-hmm. between distant entangled particles, and uh, you can't use that to signal faster than the speed of light. But the influence is there, um, and uh, and so it, it, whether or not Bohm's interpretation was correct, it certainly gave the same results and, as I said, was mathematically identical. Uh, And so the upshot was um, that Bohr's line, that there was no alternative, that this was the necessary and inevitable way of thinking about quantum physics, that, that, that these questions about what was happening when you weren't looking couldn't be answered, that was incorrect. Mm. That's what Bohm showed was that uh, that there was another way possible.
0: So in, um, you, you would say that he had a realist interpretation of quantum mechanics. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Realist um, in the sense, in the sense that things are in a certain way even even before we know it, so to speak. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean. Yes. There are
1: some things that, uh, you know, it's certainly still true in Bohm's way of looking at quantum physics that when you perform a measurement, you end up influencing the thing that you are measuring okay. and can alter the result. But there, there is, in general, a matter of fact about where things are. Mm-hmm. Um, position, in particular, is very realist. In, mm. in Bohm's interpretation. Uh, things are always somewhere, whether or not you're looking at them.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah.
1: You just might not know where.
0: <laughs> and that must have been uh, liked by Einstein. I mean, he, he liked that.
1: Yeah, no? Yeah, not really. <laughs>
0: not really? Okay, okay. Not
1: really, okay. yeah, no. Uh, Einstein, uh, he... Yeah, so he... Um, it's not the kind of solution... You know, he, he he wasn't thrilled with it. He thought... He didn't want, I think, a different way of interpreting the same theory. He wanted a theory that, that just went beyond quantum physics. He wanted... Hmm. um But he wanted he a wanted, realist
0: interpretation, right?
1: He did, yes. He wanted a hmm. realist theory, hmm. but he also wanted just a new theory that went deeper and answered okay. questions that quantum physics didn't answer. You know, something incorporating... Um, all of the known forces, something incorporating gravity, um, Mm. which quantum physics famously does not incorporate and still does not incorporate. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, Einstein didn't want a new way of interpreting quantum mechanics. He wanted a new theory. Uh, and, uh, and famously, you know, in, in a letter to his friend, Max Born, Mm. um, uh, the same physicist who helped uh, Heisenberg, you know, uh, work out his matrix mechanics. Um, Einstein called Bohm's new theory uh, too cheap. Mm-hmm. He said, that way seems too cheap to me. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, which, yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because this is, uh, you know, and and the thinking there seems to have been, yeah, you can do that but really what we need is an entirely new theory hmm. that that has quantum physics as like a special case or a limiting case something hmm. deeper um you know the the same way that uh that general relativity has Newtonian gravity as a limiting case yeah. you know something deeper um so um so yeah no einstein unfortunately was, was not really a fan, uh, but mm-hmm. he was certainly a fan of Bohm. He mm-hmm. liked Bohm the person and he thought that Bohm was doing interesting physics, mm-hmm. um, and, and supported Bohm. Um, but Bohm ran into trouble anyway. <laughs> but, uh, okay. In what, in, in what sense? Uh, Bohm, Bohm ran afoul of, uh, the red scare in the U S at the time. Bohm okay. was, uh, yeah, yep. Bohm was at Princeton, uh, which is how he knew Einstein. Einstein was at the Institute for Advanced Study, which is also yeah. in Princeton. Uh, and uh, Bohm was at the time a committed communist. And, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And so he got in really serious trouble and uh, ended up blacklisted, uh, mm-hmm. even though he had committed no crime and could not find work in the U.S., even though he had a letter of recommendation from Albert Einstein. Uh, Incredible. But that wasn't good enough, yeah. Um, and so he ended up having to leave the U.S uh, and spent um, the rest of his life living abroad, um, mm. first in Brazil, then in Israel, and then finally settling in the U.K. Mm. Um, so yeah, he um, yeah, Bohm Bohm's isolation in Brazil, in particular, at exactly the time that his papers were coming out about his new interpretation, that made it harder for him to defend his views. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so the upshot was that even though Bohm had developed this new way of thinking about quantum physics, which again, whether or not it was right, certainly put the lie to the idea that there was only one way possible of thinking about quantum physics, um, it, was, it was largely dismissed uh you know people said it had to be wrong.
0: There must be a mistake. There was no mistake yeah i see when when uh, When did this idea <clears throat> that consciousness actually affects reality when did that mm. enter the stage yeah
1: well it's it's something that people talked about um certainly as early as the late 1930s maybe going back a little earlier um there's never been to my mind uh there's never been a particularly good argument for it uh um, no. it's not something i'm particularly sympathetic to but um i agree yeah but um but it's uh it's it's something that was sort of floating around out there as a possibility um Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it it is a natural thing to wonder about, I think, Mm. if you really think that there is this, that, I I mean, the, okay, so there's this famous book, uh, textbook about quantum physics, um, written by the the great mathematician and physicist, um, John von Neumann von Neumann yeah. yeah yeah von neumann and um and in that book he talks about there being two different processes uh that that the world obeys that there's um, there's one that is what happens when no one is looking, which is basically you know wave functions obeying the Schrodinger equation, and then you know it 's very sort of smooth and continuous and and it looks very pretty mm-hmm. and then there's this other process which is what happens when an observation happens mm-hmm. and observation is not you know I, I it's not something that von neumann defines in great detail in that book and he talks about it a bit um and and in general this is this is you know the way that quantum physics was being taught and talked about Um, especially due to the influence of Bohr and his circle. And if you really think that that observation ends up being a different kind of physical process, then the question is, okay, well, what's an observation? What counts? Mm -hmm. And if you start thinking about that, then it starts to look like, okay, well, maybe, maybe consciousness has something to do with it, but but. There's no evidence of this. No. You know, the, there's, uh, you know, the, the the question is, why does it appear that something different happens when we look? And the answer is, well, looking changes the conditions of the experiment. Mm. And so we get a different outcome. Um, but that has to do with the arrangement of... Objects in the experiment, and yeah. and nothing to do with the fact that there's a person looking. Um,
0: because that idea was, yeah. became very popular, of course, in new age uh, environments. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: uh, yeah. And and there were some physicists who took it seriously for a while. But uh, you know, famously, Eugene Wigner thought about this and, mm. and talked about it in in a famous essay. Um, uh, in I want to say the very late fifties or early 1960s. He talked about Mm. this in an essay that, you know, a thought experiment in that essay that came to be known as Wigner's friend. Mm. Uh, And, and Wigner sort of talked about the idea of consciousness there um, as, as a possible culprit for, uh, you know, what constitutes an observation in quantum physics. And Wigner himself ultimately abandoned this idea later on mm-hmm. um he he was convinced by uh
0: several other people that it it couldn't really work um, and and today you know, are there any serious physicists who sort of believe that not really no 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 it's not uh and and for good reason
1: uh mm-hmm. you know that there's there is no evidence And it's, it's unclear what, it's unclear how something like that would even work. Mm. Um, You know, the, and we also have a better understanding of quantum physics now and of how experiments work in quantum physics and how observation works in in Mm. quantum physics. And um, so, no,
0: no, it's not taken seriously. And I think with good reason. Mm. And uh, yeah. yeah, and we certainly have better understanding of it experimentally now, uh, not yeah. at least because of the three Nobel Prize laureates of this year, Zeilinger, yes. Asper, and Klauser, right? Yes. Can you say, Can you tell us something about what they have done? Sure. So,
1: uh, but to do that, first, we're going to have to talk about a guy named John Bell. Okay. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um who if If Bell were alive uh, i think um, if Bell had lived longer, I think he probably would have gotten a Nobel Prize at some yeah, point as well I agree yeah. mm. um, um, so bell uh, Bell was a student uh, when bohm 's papers came out in the early 1950s and, and and Bell had been told that there was only one way of thinking about quantum physics. And that that had been proven actually in that textbook by von Neumann um and he he hadn't gone and looked in that textbook because at the time the textbook was only in German, and Bell didn't speak german but um <coughs> but bell uh Bell saw these papers come out and read them, and immediately realized that you know they they were fine, there was nothing wrong with them, and that clearly the people who had told him there was no other way to do this had to be mistaken and there had to be something wrong with von Neumann's proof. Um, and, you know, he said he saw the impossible done. He said it was uh, it was just astonishing. And so he sort of held on to that in the back of his head while he continued his PhD studies and, uh, and then, you know, went on into very successful work in... Um, in quantum physics, uh, mm. uh, becoming one of the first hires at uh, at CERN, actually, mm. um, when it first opened in the late 1950s. Um, and, uh, and then finally, in the mid-60s, um, around 1963, um, Bell and his wife, Mary, uh, who was also a physicist, the two of them took a sabbatical, and Bell finally had the time to think about what was going on with Bohm and von Neumann and quantum physics. And so he went looking at the von Neumann proof and some other proofs that were similar to it that he'd been, you know, introduced to um, and, and wrote up a paper explaining exactly what they'd gotten wrong and how Bohm had found a way around it. But it left Bell with this question that he actually said at the end of the paper, uh, which was, you know, Bohm's way out involved this faster-than-light connection, was that necessary? Mm. Uh, because the EPR paper didn't say it was necessary. It just said you have to make a choice. Either there has to be something in there that's not in the standard formulation of quantum physics, or you have something going faster mm. than the
0: speed of light. Bohm, yeah, you must have hidden so, variables. Exa- well, you, yeah, you must have something. Or, or um, speed of, faster than the speed of light, I yeah, guess. And so, mm.
1: Yeah, and so Bohm had both... He had something that was in there that was not the standard formulation and stuff going faster than the speed of light. And so Bell quite reasonably wondered, okay, do you need both? Mm. Um, And so he sat down and worked out a variation on the EPR thought experiment, a different version, um, literally with a twist, uh, and came to the conclusion using that thought experiment and the you know a fairly simple line of reasoning um that no there was no way out that um that the choice was not between you know quantum physics being incomplete and something going faster than the speed of light that the choice was instead between quantum physics actually producing incorrect results in certain experimental setups or Something is going faster than the speed of light. Mm. Um, there There is a very simple line of reasoning that he used, starting not even from the assumption of hidden variables, just starting from this assumption of locality mm. And he used that to produce a set of bounds, inequalities on certain kinds of experimental results and certain kinds of experimental setups. And quantum physics said that those bounds were violated in those experimental setups. Mm. No one had done the experiment, though. Mm. Uh, now, Bell wasn't betting against quantum physics, but he published this result saying, look, either quantum physics is wrong in these experimental setups and these bounds are correct or these bounds are violated quantum physics is correct which means that the initial assumption of locality is wrong uh and so that paper was published in uh that paper was published in 1965 actually even though the date says 1964 uh and um yeah uh and um And so that paper was published and it was published in a very obscure little journal because Bell was, you know, concerned about not having the place that he was being hosted at on his sabbatical paying publication fees on his behalf. Um, and so it didn't, it didn't generate much of a stir at first, Mm -hmm. uh, even though it was a deep and profound result, um, and then um, people started looking at it. Uh, and this is where Clouser and then Aspey and Seilinger come in. So Klauser uh, looked at it. Uh, he stumbled across this paper when he was a graduate student in 1969 and sent a letter to Bell saying, you know, is this, uh, has this experiment been done? Has anyone actually tried this? Uh, and Bell wrote back saying, no, I'm, I'm not aware of anyone having tried it. Uh, I, I, you know, somebody should, I expect that quantum physics will be correct and, uh, and that, you know, everything will come out in accordance with it. Uh, but obviously it would be, a, a you know, uh, I would shake the world if quantum physics were incorrect. I believe is the exact phrasing that he used. Mm. Um, and... So Klauser started working on it. And at the same time, there were a few other people who independently started working on it, including a guy named Abner Shimoni, who had been one of Wigner's students, um, and and had helped convince Wigner that consciousness does not have anything to do with collapse. Mm. Um and then Shimoni and Klauser, uh, Shimoni and and his collaborators and Klauser ended up finding each other and deciding to work together. Uh, and this ultimately led to a paper where Klauser and Shimoni and company published a modified version of Bell's result to make it easier to do the experiment, to test it. Mm. And then in 1972, um, I think there's some background noise. I'm sorry about that. There's nothing I can do. No about problem. It. It's outside. Yeah. No um. Problem. Yeah. In 1972, Klauser and, um, Uh, someone who was working with him named uh, Stuart Friedman, published a result of their first experiment uh, testing Bell's inequality. And it came out exactly the way that quantum physics said that it would. So the Bell inequality was violated, suggesting that something somehow was going faster than the speed of light. Uh, And so that was the first test ever conducted. Um, so that's what Clauser gets credit for. Mm. Um, and then there were a couple more tests done by other teams that actually conflicted with that result. And so Clauser repeated his results a few different ways and it kept coming back that no, uh, his initial result was correct and quantum physics was correct, which was not the outcome by the way that Clauser was hoping for. Klauser was hoping to find a violation, mm. um, uh, which would be, you know, much more exciting, obviously. Um, mm um but there was still an issue which was um in in the bell experiment the bell experiment is a version of the epr experiment where instead of two um electrons being measured or instead of spins being measured along the same axis they're being measured along sometimes the same axis and sometimes different axes Um, and the, the choice is sort of thought to be independent at, at both ends of the experiment. And then you, you test the correlations, you know, you, you measure these entangled particles and then you look at the correlations you have between them. And this leads to Mm -hmm. a violation of the Bell inequality. Um, the settings of the tests at each end of the experiment in Klauser's uh, experiment were done um, slower than the speed of light. And so in theory, there would be time for something going slower than yeah. the speed of light to travel from one end of the experiment to the other. Yeah. And some sort of signal to get there. Um, Aspe found a way to do it faster, fast Mm. enough that there could not be a signal from one end of the experiment to the other. And so that result was published in uh, 1981, I believe. Mm. Um, And then Aspe went around and gave many talks about it and got people more interested in this subject, which was Mm. also quite an accomplishment. So that's, that's what Aspe did. Um, And then the question, there were still some loopholes. There were still some questions about detector efficiency uh, actually randomizing the directions uh, set by the detectors at, at both mm. ends of the experiment um, and uh, and just in general improving this experiment tra- testing it over longer and longer and longer distances uh, and that's where Zeilinger comes in. Zeilinger uh, led the team that did most of those things either first or best mm. Uh and um and so you know really uh pioneered what's called the third generation of these bell tests you know the first generation Mm. being pioneered by clauser the second being pioneered by aspe the third was pioneered by zeilinger and his team in Vienna. yeah
0: okay fast forward to to today uh what what is your? We've been talking for an hour now already. <laughs> oh wow! Um, but, but I have just a few more questions. Yeah, um, that's that's totally fine. That's good. Um, uh, what? 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 I mean, after researching this for a long time that you have done, where is your own personal view here? I mean, do you think that there is a philosophical interpretation that is coherent that works? And what do you give up? Do you give up realism or locality or what do you give up to get it all together?
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, I mean, hmm, I think when I was writing the book, I deliberately took a fairly agnostic position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, saying there has to be some answer to these questions. Mm. So this sort of standard Copenhagen view is not an option because it doesn't give answers. It's not no. an interpretation. It's, uh, it's, it's just it's not shut up, up and calculate. Exactly. Yeah, mm. there's, nothing, there's nothing there. Um, but aside from that, my position is fairly agnostic. I just wanted to say, okay, look, there, there should be an answer. I don't know what that answer is. I'm going to present the possibilities. Um, and, and not even present all of the possibilities because there are so, so many different interpretations. I'm just going to present, you know, the history of how this field has developed and the, the historically salient options. Mm. Um, salient and important um um and then when I was done with the book, I sort of came to the conclusion that that position was a little bit more than just a convenient one for me to take for the purposes of the book. i I don't know which one, if any, are correct. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think that we're going to have a good sense. Of what the right trade-off is, because there there is always a trade-off, as you were saying. You know, you, you mm. have to either give up locality, or give up the idea that there is a single universe, mm. uh, or give up something, or give up the. You're idea You're thinking that of Everett's Ma- right,
0: yeah, many worlds interpretation. Yeah, yeah. we haven't yes, even discussed yeah. it, but which but, we <laughs> haven't even gotten to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, uh, um, but you stick to realism. I have to ask you: Do you still yes? Think- mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, because because it's difficult to make sense of how science works and how it's so successful without some kind of realism. Mm. I mean, and there are many different kinds of realism. There are many mm. different ways that realism can be true, but there is, you know, the there is something out there in the world that um that is something like some aspect of quantum physics. Something is making quantum physics work. Mm. It's it's not just a coincidence that it works. There's something that is latching onto in the world that mm. um, that is something like the mathematical structures of the theory, mm. and we don't know what that is. But it's the job of physics to find out. You think um, we will? I think we'll get a better idea of it, yeah. I think that ultimately what's going to be the acid test is we are going to end up with a new theory that does go beyond quantum physics Um, because we know that quantum physics is not the end of the story. We know that quantum physics as it currently stands does not incorporate general relativity our best theory of gravity and there are other problems as well Uh, and these are active areas of research. I think that when we get a deeper theory, it will inform answers to questions about how to think about quantum physics. Mm. Um, the The problem is that it, it you know it, it's not what I'm not saying is we shouldn't think about this until we get a deeper theory because we'll never know. What I'm saying is the question how should we be thinking about quantum physics and and what's the answer to this measurement problem what constitutes an observation um those are open problems in physics of the first rank Mm -hmm. and historically what we know is those sorts of problems are best thought about together you know it 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 may be that a theory of quantum gravity gives us insight into the answer to the measurement problem Or it might be the reverse. It might be that thinking about the measurement problem in a particular way, thinking about a particular kind of solution to it, gives insight into, you know, the best way to think about quantum gravity. Mm. Um,
0: We don't know. Mm. Um, But I do think that we will learn more. Have you read um, the recent book by Carlo Rovelli called Helgoland? No, I know about it, but I have not read it. Mm. He's discussing some kind of relational interpretation of reality, which mm-hmm. seems, uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I read it recently and I find it interesting. But okay, so you, you can't really comment on that. No, 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 I've I've
1: I've seen it, and I've also seen papers responding to it, um, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that Rovelli is working on a response to those responses. (laughs) Um, So I know there's a literature on this, uh, but I'm not I'm not deeply familiar with it. I I do know all I can say is it is a heavy lift to ask for purely relational, um, a purely relational picture to account for the richness of the world around us, but that doesn't
0: mean it's impossible. I don't know enough to comment uh-huh. on it beyond that. Do you yeah. plan to sort of follow this, uh, this development and write more about it, or are you going to other topics now? Uh, a little of both. Um,
1: you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still writing about physics, mm. um, you know, writing articles for different news outlets and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, Scientific American. I, I just wrote about uh, uh, new development in the philosophy of quantum field theory for Scientific American. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I I don't. You know, I'm working on a new book, and that's not what it's about. No. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so no. I I, um, I expect that I'll be writing about quantum physics in some sense. You know, in some some way or another, probably, for the rest of my life um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh because I love it, and i love I love writing about it, but I don't know that I'm ever going to write another book about it. We'll see mm. <laughs> um,
0: certainly not my next book yeah but i do I do agree with you there is something with quantum physics that is so fascinating, that is sort of yeah. more it's above all other science. <laughs> Uh, yes, in a way, yeah. I think yeah. I, I really share that that view with you. Okay, we should we can talk more uh, off record, but I think we should end the, sure. the podcast now. So, Adam Absolutely. Becker, thank you very much for being in our podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure.